0: Well, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations 1, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find that on page 685. The title of our sermon is I Am Despised, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are sorrow. Nope. Empty, shame, and desperate. Empty, shame, and desperate are key words for our, for our youngins to listen for as, as we go. Uh, Thomas Brooks writes in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he says, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait of and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. He then offers several remedies against this. Hence the title of the book. He says, beginning the second remedy for this device of Satan, he writes, uh, He says, that seeming sweet that is sin will quickly vanish. Remember this, he says, that what is seemingly sweet about sin will quickly vanish, and lasting shame, horror, and terror will come into the room thereof. He says, Many eat. That on earth, what they digest in hell. This is why we can thank God. This is one reason why we can thank God for the book of Lamentations. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the book of Lamentations serves this crucial purpose of making us wise to the schemes of the devil in this regard. There are several benefits to reading and studying and preaching the book of Lamentations, and I mentioned a few of them last week. We said it connects us to the saints of the past. This is an old book. It enriches our vocabulary as we speak about pain and suffering. It, it talks at length about those things. So it helps us to, to have put a voice to our own pain. And it also helps us to plumb the depths of our theology as we seek to hold together the goodness of God and the anguish that we experience in this fallen world. So it helps us to hold these two things together. Well, here's another benefit that we get to reading this book. It exposes the true end of sin. It exposes the true end of sin for what it is. All right? You don't have to wonder what the outcome of a life committed to sinning will be. You don't have to wonder the outcome of... Con- Continued and constant rebellion against God. Lamentations exposes it for you in spades. Now we need to be clear. In this book, we are going to encounter some difficult language. Difficult imagery. And today is no exception. So as we look at the results of sin. We need to be prepared. There are some mature themes that we have to handle. And I promise we will do so as carefully as we can. But it is something that we must address and something I want you to sort of be aware of as we head into this passage this morning. But despite that, despite the difficulty of the book, the the uneasiness that it puts us to. Lamentations is a book that we need. It is a book that forces us to sit in the ashes of a broken world with saints, sufferers, and sinners. And it forces us to realize that we have nothing that we can do but look to God as the ruler of the universe and remember that He is working all things out for His good and perfect ends. And so, if you find yourself tempted to give up, don't. There is agony before us, but there is glory on the other side of it. Last week, in the first three verses of this book, we saw that the narrator was, he begins by lamenting these great reversals that had been brought upon Jerusalem because of her idolatry and her forsaking the Lord, right? We, uh, the Babylonian invasions uh, in 605 B.C., and then about a decade later, there's a second invasion, and then finally in 586 B.C., a third invasion where the city is burned to the ground, the temple is destroyed, and uh, most people are, are carried away. There's a few of the poorest left. And this is the lament of what's happened to God's people. We saw last week that she who was full is now empty. She who was great is now poor. She who was powerful is now a slave. And in light of these reversals, she she weeps, surrounded, we saw, by merciless lovers who promised her the world and left her with nothing. Nothing. And then we saw, to our great surprise, that this tragedy, this awful bitter end, was brought upon the nation of Judah, specifically the city, Jerusalem itself, God's chosen people, where the temple was, God's chosen people have been brought so low, And, and so today we see the narrator continue his lament um, In this acrostic form, right? Remember, every, uh, the first four chapters at least, there's five poems, the first four are uh, done in acrostic form where uh, it follows the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So he continues this today before Lady Zion interrupts to sorrow for herself. And so let's read the uh, verses four through 11, outline them, and then unpack them. The roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted or dragged away, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, when there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and her, turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She is no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. So we... Consider these verses this morning, I want you to notice three things with me. Verses four through six we will see the poet lament the departure of Jerusalem's prestige. Second, in verses seven through ten, we will see the poet lament the desecration of Jerusalem's precious things. And third, in verse eleven, we will see the poet lament the the desperation of of Jerusalem's people. So we have the departure of Jerusalem's prestige, the desecration of Jerusalem's precious things, and the desperation of Jerusalem's people. How do you like that for alliteration? Look at me in the first place, verses 4 through 6, where we see Jerusalem's prestige departed. Last week, I, I told you to pay attention to the word all here in chapter 1. We saw back in verse 2, we saw all her lovers and all her friends. And in verse 3, all have overtaken her. Here uh, in verse 4, we see all her gates and all her majesty in verse 6. In verses 7-10, through 10, we see all the precious things, all who honored her, all her precious things things again next week lord willing in verses 12 through 22 we'll see all who pass by all the day long all my mighty men all you peoples all my enemies and all my transgressions there is a totality to the destruction that has been brought upon the people of that the poet seeks to encapsulate here in this repeated use of the word all. And here in verses 4 through 6 we see the word all twice, once in verse 4 and once or sorry in verse 4 through 6 we see it in verse 4 and in verse 6 and they both convey a sense of fallen prestige or or power. All her gates are desolate. All her majesty has departed. The gates of the city were a place of of planning and strategy. For the gates of Jerusalem to be desolate, there has been a great reversal. Jerusalem at one point was the powerhouse of the ancient Near East under David and Solomon. Though ever since, there had been a steady decline until finally Assyria and Babylon eventually took over and then others after them. The Medes and Persians, Greeks, the Romans. But at one point, Jerusalem was it. All her plans, all her strategies had been reduced to nothing by this invasion. There was no one left in her gates to extend her power, to extend her might and her rule. Down in verse 6, her majesty is departed. And what's the result of all this? In these Three verses. There is mourning, groaning, affliction, bitter suffering, the prospering of enemies, the captivity of children, restless and weak leaders fleeing their pursuer. The overall sense of these verses echo the verse. Uh, what, uh, what we read in verse one: there is an emptying out that has taken place. The power and prestige that once marked God's people has been taken away. The bustling, joyous city has been left abandoned and desolate, deserted. The temple that teemed with worshipful sacrifices to the living God now stands empty. It doesn't stand at all, in fact. It, it was razed to the ground and burned. The priests are groaning, and the virgins or the, the young, chaste female singers in the temple, they are now afflicted or uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has it that they are dragged away. And who has done all of this? We are left to ask. Most assuredly, there are two answers. The enemy has triumphed. Her enemies prosper. And yet, it was the Lord who afflicted the city for her multitude of transgressions, we read in verse 5. This is a theme we will return to many times throughout this book. Lady Zion suffers as a result of her sins under the hand of her covenant Lord. Chris Wright suggests in his commentary, her suffering is beyond imagining, but not beyond explanation. It is unbearable, But it is not innocent. What we will find to fill these pages is extremely unpleasant. But it's not unwarranted. There was a multitude of transgressions committed by Judah that the Lord sought to forgive and to overlook for centuries. But eventually, they became too many the long-suffering groom puts away his, faith, his unfaithful bride. And so Jerusalem was left without pasture, without a resting place. Left to flee and hide from her enemy, Pursuer, in whom she had ironically sought refuge in years past. You, you don't have to turn with me there, but just note and listen to Psalm 48 for a moment. It says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God his holy mountain beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king with inner citadels god has made himself known as a fortress for behold the kings assembled they came on together and as soon as they saw it they were astounded they were in panic they took flight Trembling took hold of them there. Anguished as a woman in labor by the east wind, You shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought in Your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of Your temple, as Your name, O God, so Your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of Your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever or beyond death. Do you sense the joy and the gladness that pervaded the hearts of God's people, that should have pervaded the hearts of God's people as they participated together in the worship in the temple. You can contrast this with Joel chapter 1. We see verses 8 through 13. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and the gladness dries up from the children of man." Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Do we see here this contrast where an enemy invasion had temporarily brought about a cessation of worship there in Joel, contrasted with what we saw in. Psalm forty-eight. Now, here in lamentations, imagine the heart cry, the anguish, the desperation of the poet as he laments the destruction of the temple altogether and the cessation of life in the entire city. And how about you? Do you, as the psalmist, in Psalm 122, rejoice when it is time to go up to the house of the Lord. Do you look forward to our weekly gathering each Lord's Day? Do you make it a priority? Is Lord's Day worship something that you attend to out of obligation or out of gratitude? Do you make sure to keep the day set apart for worship, for rest, for acts of love and mercy? Do you plan ahead what time you will retire on Saturday to be well-rested for vigorous, God-centered worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we regularly have to drag ourselves out of bed on Sunday morning? Brothers and sisters, there is... A great joy that we should have in the freedom that we have to, to worship and participate in corporate worship each week. And I'm grateful for this church and for the, the eager expectation that I know that we have. And, and I hope that we can be reminded afresh from a passage like this, lamenting the cessation of worship and the, the prestige of the temple there in Jerusalem. What a blessing that we have to be able to gather for worship together each week. And not just gathering ourselves, but bringing others into it, right? The roads to Zion mourn. Do the roads to Redeemer Baptist Church mourn? I don't think so. And so let us be eager and ready to invite others to join us. Can you think of somebody Somebody that you maybe you live by, a neighbor, or someone that you work with that you could invite to join us in worship next week, or the week after that? Why don't we prayerfully consider who that might be? That's the first point. The power, the prestige, the glory of Jerusalem gone. But secondly, here in verses 7 through 10, we see Jerusalem's precious things desecrated. Humiliation, shame, and violation are the main ideas in these verses, verses 7 through 10. And they're set off, these two verses, from the rest by the phrase, all the precious things, or all her precious things. We see that in verses 7 and verse 10. In verse 7, Jerusalem, we're told, remembers all the precious things that were from days of old in her wanderings and affliction. They wander in the wilderness. And then down in verse 10, the enemy has stretched out his hands all over her precious things, entering her sanctuary. These verses progress from the general to the, to the specific. In verse 7, he thinks of all that Judah held dear. Her covenantal living with God, the law, the land, the temple, the festivals, or prophets, priests and kings. In verse 10, he's thinking particularly of the physical treasures in the temple and the glory and splendor of holiness and the glory of God that they represented. Now in verses seven through nine, the poet painstakingly describes Jerusalem's fall in what can only be categorized as sexual abuse. So here's some of the mature themes that we spoke of earlier. Her she falls into the hands of her enemy and she is mocked by her foes in verse seven. Jerusalem becomes filthy, despised, and her nakedness is exposed for all to see, and she hides her face in horror and shame in verse eight. She becomes unclean in verse 9 in her blind pursuit of her multitude of lovers. All her lovers have now ironically turned on her. They humiliate, mock, and expose her nakedness as punishment for her infidelity to her covenant lover, the Lord. At the end of verse 9, the poet interjects what is surely a barely audible cry from this shameful Woman, you see the quotes there at the end of verse nine. O oh Lord, behold my affliction; for the enemy has triumphed, and her cry begs a question: Whose enemy has triumphed? What? Who's the en- the enemy that has triumphed? And who is the enemy that looks on this woman with such contempt? Well, it's her enemy but it's also God's enemy. If the wife is shamed, the husband is shamed. The woman lying in the ash heap begs her covenant Lord to come down to ride in and save the day. And you know what? That's exactly what he does. One commentator writes, little did she know that God indeed would come down that God himself would suffer nakedness, bearing shame and scoffing rude, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But we are a long way from that redemptive moment here in Lamentations chapter 1. He writes, The worst is yet to come. For now, we must be content to sit in the ashes. And observe this suffering woman. And what we are about to witness is extremely unpleasant in verse 10. Consider what he says in verse 10 The enemy has stretched out his hands all over her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. That at first glance, verse ten is a simple description of Babylon's invasion of Jerusalem, where they carried off her treasures, specifically the temple treasures. You can read about this in Psalm seventy-four, Psalm seventy-nine. But considering the shame theme that runs through these these verses in seven through ten, considering the 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 uh, the anguishing sexual abuse imagery. Verses 7 through 9, that is almost surely being carried here into verse 10 in a bit of a euphemism. The hand of the enemy has pawed at her, and the nations have gone into her holy place. One commentator writes To her horror, Jerusalem watched Gentile nations enter her sanctuary. The sexual illusions are clear. The word enter is often used to describe the act of a man entering a woman the image is of jerusalem being raped and he goes on to suggest something even worse by the mention of plural nations here the rape of women in ancient and present warfare stands as a sign of utter triumph over a nation in jerusalem's case she is violated in god's own house and the poet subtly asks God to explain. How could such a thing happen? Do you see where he brings God into the conversation? Or he, tempts, he attempts to here? The nations entered her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. In Deuteronomy, God forbids certain Gentile nations from even entering into the, the assembly of the congregation in His law formally and officially. And here the, the poet calls that to mind. You, O Lord, who's the, who's the You? God Almighty, You forbade. Your congregation has been desecrated and defiled, O God. The poet is in anguish at the suffering of this sinful woman. And he asks God, how could this happen in your own house? And yet, neither the poet nor God answers that question here. It's just left hanging in midair. And so for now, we're left wondering, indeed, how could it be? Do you resonate with the poet here? Is, is it easy for you to look on at suffering like this? Here in verse 10, the poet forces us to face the tension that exists in our hearts. As we, on the one hand, stare at the wickedness of Israel. And on the other hand, we have this great ache in our hearts because at some level we are longing and begging for mercy on this sobbing woman here in this text. At some level our hearts say, I don't care what she did. I can't look on. And shouldn't we carry the same tension with us into the present day in our ongoing lives, and ministries. When someone is caught dead to rights in sin and is suffering tremendously for her wickedness or His wickedness, how do you respond? Do you, do you gloat and mock? Are you relieved that finally He got, she got His comeuppance? Or are you overcome with anguish and sorrow? Lamentations requires us to wrestle with no quick and easy escape the reality of the brutal suffering into which sinners fall. They may deserve it. They do deserve it. We deserve suffering. But it doesn't make it easy to witness. And our hearts should break at the prospect of even the greatest sinner suffering. Well, look with me in the third place, then, at verse 11, where we see the people of Jerusalem in frantic desperation. We've seen the the power and the prestige depart. We've seen the precious things desecrated, and now we see a desperate people. The people groan and they search for bread, for sustenance, for provision. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Now, the meaning behind this phrase is not easy to discern. They trade their treasures for food. What are their treasures? What are these treasures? Well, according to most commentators, it may very well refer to their own children. In Hosea nine sixteen, 16, the same word is used and translated as children. Hosea says, even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Things have gotten so bad in Jerusalem, the people are literally starving to death and parting with what they value most in this world in the hope of survival. Parting, perhaps, even with their own children. What a desperate and devastating place to be. Selling their children to enemy overlords for rations of food? Unthinkable for anyone, certainly for anyone with children. Now it is possible here that they're not giving their children away in exchange for food, but they're giving their children away so that they, that is the children, might revive, might be fed, and the parents leave themselves to starve. That is possible. But whatever the case, children or material possessions, selling them in exchange for food or selling them so that they might have food, once again, the point is this. We see the utter destruction that sin will bring upon all who cozy up to it and seek what it offers. It offers fullness, fatness, and freedom. What it actually delivers, emptiness, starvation, and hard Servitude and the most anguishing decisions you might have to make in your entire life. It offers ecstasy and joy and pleasures, and it delivers that which is best described in gruesome, rapacious language. And it's here where the second voice of the poem emerges. Remember last week I said there's a sort of a back and forth. It's not, it's not carried all the way through the, the five poems, but in the first two especially, we see this back and forth between the narrator and this woman personified, the city personified as a woman, Lady Zion. And she, she sort of interrupts in verse 9, or he, he offers her, he, he gives her voice there, and, and here she comes again at the, verse, the end of verse 11, and then she takes over in verse 12. And uh, through, through the end of, of the chapter. And so uh, we see here at the end of ver- verse 11 where she speaks up once more. She interrupts the narrator to put her, her grief into her own words. She says, in short, crying out to God again, look, O Lord, and see, bring, trying to bring God in, for I am despised. What a tragedy. God's people, the apple of His eye, His prized possession, they have lost all favor and can only be described as being despised. The plight of sinners sinners can be summed up in this one sentence, I am despised. Despised by self, despised by others, despised by Satan, and worst of all, despised by God. And yet, we can thank God that that isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of Lamentations, and it's certainly not the end of the Bible. And yet, it's important that we not rush too quickly to get to the end of the story, to ease an uncomfortable moment. Lamentations, in no small part, forces us to take a long, hard look at the consequences of sin. Before closing, then I I, want to offer a summary of what we've said so far and return briefly to Thomas Brooks. So the summary, in the first 11 verses of Lamentations, we have been confronted with the heinousness of the the woman's city's sins and with the immensity of her suffering because of those sins. And if we're honest, our hearts should be We should clearly feel that they are set to burst in anguish over this. To see the destruction and devastation and despair that sin brings upon God's beloved here in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem, it should cause us to wretch. We'll enter Brooks again. Here's what Brooks writes. He says, When you stand before the judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked. And its dress and robes shall then be taken off. And then it shall appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Ah, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell that the sight of sin when its dress is taken off will raise in poor souls. Sin will surely prove evil and bitter to the soul when its robes are taken off. Lamentations provides for us the unmasking, the derobing of sin. And it gives us an uncomfortably long look at its consequences. And so for us, we should be warned and be wise. The darkness is going to persist forever a while in this book. But that's important. And it's good for us to sit with these questions and not to find easy answers. There are no easy answers. There are answers, but they don't come quickly. But what we want to do in the meantime, before they arrive, is to position ourselves to receive well the answers when they do come. And so let me close with this Well, with a few questions. Do you presently find yourself desperate and despised because of your sins? Are you nurturing and nourishing various sins in your life? Have you sought refuge in other lovers besides God? Have you set yourself up as the supreme ruler of your own little kingdom? Have you believed the lies of the world, your flesh and the devil, and therefore finding yourself reduced to ashes? Are you having to part with whatever you hold most dear just to survive? Well, let me allow, allow me then to offer you this. We see in verse 11 that the people trade what they value most for bread. Let me offer you the bread that never perishes. The Lord Jesus tells us in John 6 that He is the bread that came down from heaven and all who come to Him shall never hunger. Jeremiah describes the plight of the sinner in this way. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah. The sinner commits two evils. He forsakes God, the fountain of living water. And second, he commits himself to building low-quality, insufficient replacements that will not provide for his needs. Broken wells that can hold no water, he says. Are you drinking from broken wells of your own making? My friend, I would urge you now, turn turn back. Return to the fountain of living water. Return to the bread from heaven that never perishes. And find the nourishment that your soul needs desperately needs would you look to heaven and find the bread for which which was broken for sinners like like us the blood that was shed for sinners like us